Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Faces that I look weird to some of you guys. <laughs> and don't worry, some of you guys look really weird to me too. <laughs> but yeah, nice. It's a joy to be here. Thank you, Joel, Lauren, and Sozo Church uh, for opening uh, just conversation. You know, um, man, these guys are the real deal. You know, my wife and I just planted a church in downtown Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. And Nebraska is a real place. Like it has people and followers. <laughs> And we even have a, a cinema right now for a dollar you can see Superman right now. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing place. And um, when we uh, when we paid with God and we were, I was doing a tenant ministry heavily for the last three years before COVID, um, God put in our heart to build. And I didn't know what it looked like, but somebody stirred in my heart for this word called family. And um, I've been to a lot of churches and I've been preaching at a lot of places. And... Um, I've never seen family just stewarded and even growth and such an invitation that you guys are hosting right here. I honor all the team, everything you guys do. I was able to speak to sit countless hours with a lot of the leadership here and just kind of glean from them because at our church at the kingdom, if we're not doing it in family, I don't want to do it. And if you're considering going somewhere else after today, you're crazy. I just thank you guys for being a seedbed where people can come in vulnerability and plant on such amazing soil to not just see their relationships spiritually grow, but their relationships healed and their destinies called out and activated and empowered. So I thank you guys one billion percent for putting that example for people like us. To do what you do. Man. I should have brought Windex. Yeah, sorry. It's gonna be one of those days, but I think it's gonna be fun. Um, I did write a book called "Roar: Walking God's Power Without Apology." It talks about that testimony of when I was run over by a car in South Africa, away from my mom. And the the fun in that um, is there an Allison here? Allison, do you know an Allison? How about an Amanda? Amanda, come forward. Yeah, here, we can give it to your friend. We just, we just blessed Amanda. We, uh, in pre, in, yeah, in pre-service prayer, um, we were praying, and somebody got a word of knowledge about your friend Amanda, and just to encourage her that she's seen, that she's loved, and um, she's in a season where she can enjoy, enjoy God and join her. Amen, amen, yeah. Anybody here going after healing, divine healing? Like, man, you want to know some answers? You want to see some bloopers and stuff like that, the failures? Come on up. I'll give it to you right here. Yeah, no problem. I'll get you one in the back, too. And by the way, they are for sale. You know, all the proceeds go to feed a hungry family, mine. Um, so <laughs> they are in the back. They're in the back. Um, I think we're doing one for 20, two for 30. Or if you want to take all of them, go ahead, man, because we've got to fly back with Omaha with the big thing of books. Give us a price. We'll give them to you. And um, it's a funny story. And um, yeah, so I think I have a call for entrepreneurship, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm in the right place. Uh, I want to give away this other book. It's um, the book that really changed my life and put the gospel in my heart. It's called Awake to Righteousness. One of my buddies from, um, 
from uh, Australia, Mark Greenwood, wrote this book. It's a thorough message on what the gospel is and what your inheritance is because of it. It goes over the message of what sanctification is. You're no longer a sinner. Come up. I saw you. Come on up. This is a great book. Get it online. Awake to Righteousness. Everywhere I go and preach, I give away this book because it connected the dots, not just theologically, but relationally for me. And this is a great resource, and I'll give one more away. First one up here. On your mark, set, go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Amen. I just do that so people get healed, actually. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you guys today, man. I'm from Texas. Me and my wife, uh, my beautiful wife, Beth, we live in Omaha. And we just planted a church in February um, called The Kingdom. It's in downtown Omaha. It's great, man. We love Jesus. Uh, we're going through it. But man, I'm just, like I said, it, it really encourages me when I can see it done out in family. When I see you, I see thousands of other families behind each of yours with restoration, with reconciliation. So it counts that you're here. And um, I guess you guys are wondering what I'm going to preach about. And I'm, uh, I'm hopefully going to get there. But... Um, yeah, I'm just glad to be here when it's not hot. Um, man. The biggest idol humanity has is not money, it's not fame, it's not screen time. It's a false version of themselves. And a religion has made a huge industry and makes a lot of money off of us. Trying to bridge a gap that's not there any longer because of the cross. I'm one of these guys who loves to, I love freedom, I love joy, I love bourbon, I love my wife, I love church. And I color outside the lines a lot of the times. And, um, but I'm free to do it because I'm loved. And if I can just spend the next 20 minutes of my 28 minutes here with you guys, the only thing I want to talk to you about is what the finished work of the cross has accomplished for you. And just because you may not be enjoying it doesn't mean it's not real. You see, the word says that you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And what that says is that what you don't know about the truth is why you're still experiencing bondage. You see, religion deserves to be mocked. And I'm going to define religion for you because if you have a problem with that statement that dead religion deserves to be mocked, well, then don't open the New Testament. Because literally Jesus comes to a religious, legalism type of identity, mindset, culture, and he says, no, grace is the way. And guess what? In this economy, the last are first. The people who show up to work in the last hour of the day get paid the same as the people who have been there all day. And the dangerous thing about this message is that it creates a world that we cannot control. It creates a capacity in you of love that you're designed and you fulfill a level of forgiveness that you can't even conjure up in your own effort. So I want to talk to you today about this. Daniel is his name, the guy that hit me in the middle of South African Road. South Africa, preaching the gospel, Bethel ministry trip, time of my life, walk across the street, 40 miles an hour, car comes, it's not like, it just like went right through me, just like you see in the movies, like meet Joe Black, I went through the windshield, flipped over, landed on the floor, legs shattered, compound fractures, 
People had to throw blankets over my legs because people couldn't look at the carnage that was there. And in the middle, I had no pain. People said it was shock. I was like, well, shoot, I still must be shocked because I don't feel, I feel the same exact way that I did that day. I was laying in the middle of, in the, middle of the road. Pandemonium was going on. Um, these cars were still driving in the middle of us. How rude. <laughs> and people were there, and there was commotion, and they were calling the ambulance. And um, when I was laying there in the middle of the asphalt, I see a shadow, a silhouette come right next to me. I look up, and his name's Daniel. And he's standing over me, and he goes, man, are you all right? I didn't even see you and all these things. Oh, man, what can I do? And I'm like, bro, I'm good, dude. It's good. Have you ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? <laughs> and he looks at me like, what? And I was like, you know that Jesus has forgiven your sin, man, and he loves you. He's like, no, I've never heard this. And it wasn't what I said there that got him to come to church. It's how I said it, and it's what I brought with it. You see, long before that collision, I had hit the love of God. I had a collision with the love of God about a year and a half before. And it was in a tiny church in San Antonio. My buddy Chuck Marr was there. And if I ever get to heaven, I always say it's his fault. <laughs> but I encountered the love of God tangibly. And then I would go and pray for the sick. And I saw great things, man. And then when I was in all this happened, I encountered the love of God in the middle of the street while I was broken. And I was, I was able to offer reconciliation, not because I'm commanded to love my neighbor. It's simply because I understood that I've been loved first. And who is loved much will forgive much. That's just funny how it works with grace. But I remember um, after getting hit, we went to the hospital. Man, I saw, we saw like 120 people give their life to Jesus. I was there 10 days. I got operated on. I didn't get divinely healed on this leg, but this one I did. I still have a metal rod to this day. If you want to pray for me, awesome. We can take care of that after. But I remember being in the hospital bed for 10 days, just had surgery, and I'm going into the x-ray room right after the, right after the night I had surgery, and they're checking out, making sure the bars aligned, and I get these things called words of knowledge where um, you get in intel about people you would never know. So my orderlies were pushing me. I'm like, hey, you have like some type of disease, like Lyme's disease, and you, you were in a car accident five years ago, and your hand is like messed up. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, if this is true, Jesus is going to heal you. Come here. So I'm in the bed, and they come, and I pray for them, and in the elevator, they all get healed. So they take me into the, uh, the MRI room or the, the imaging room, and there's like a five-minute wait, and after they're prayed for, they kind of leave me there waiting for the room to be emptied. The room's empty. They put me in. I'm there for 15 minutes getting imaged. And when I come out, there's like a line of people in the hospital down the hall. And they had went out, so it said that this guy just prayed for us, and we got radically healed. And I remember in that 10-day period, I saw like four or five people wake up from comas. Over 19 people with HIV totally healed. I was known as the guy in 4C. And I remember I'd be in my bed like at 3 in the morning, and people would just come, doctors, nurses, bringing their family Waking me up at three in the morning and say, hey, we need prayer. And man, I'm so glad, I'm so honored, I'm so grateful, and I'm so humbled that God would use someone who didn't have it all together at one time to do this. You know, and I've seen God do the, the impossible. I've seen the dead raised. I've seen people walk out of wheelchairs. I've seen my own healing. You know, and it, it overwhelms me what God can do. It overwhelms me what he's able to do. But it's not what takes my breath away. What takes my breath away is what he's not willing to do. He's not willing to pretend to be alone. 
He's not willing to support an infrastructure that allows for distance, delay, and separation when the finished work of the cross accomplishes union. So I want to talk to you today about that oneness, that union. And the good news is, is that there's no varying degrees of union. You're either in or you're not. You're either one with the Holy Spirit or you're not. And religion cripples relationships. It put in a pseudo identity on you to earn what's already given you freely by grace. I've seen a lot of people hurt even though they're super sincere for Jesus. You see, we live in a world right now where they have an identification process and so do we as a church sometimes. You know, and I'm glad to encounter that with love and grace even in my church. And people are asking today, where's God? Even people who don't believe that I'm talking to you and I tell them I know Jesus and I pastor a church, that's cool. I get that. You have cool testimonies, Carlos, and you've seen the sick healed. And you can tell me about parables of Jesus. And I've been there. My grandma told me those. But where is God? Where's God? You know, and if we don't know the message of the gospel, what we do is, in, with sincere hearts, is we point them to somewhere else. You see, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, anybody ever read that story? So Jesus meets this woman at the well, and if you can just put it up on the screen, I'll read it for you. But this woman at the well had the same questions that everybody's having today in church and outside of church. Where's God? Or let me open up my cell phone, and I'll read it to you real quick, but... I didn't even bring a Bible this trip. That's crazy, right? (laughs) It's okay. I'll be accredited in two years of my master's, and then you can can call me a heretic, I guess, (laughs) with with accreditation. (laughs) I'm joking. So we meet this place, and um, we all know the theme of the story. Um, Jesus meets this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. He shouldn't be even in the same place as she is, and she's bamboozled that a, that a Jewish man would talk to her and she's there to draw water and Jesus says, draw me water. You don't even have a pail. And he says, well, if you just got my water, you would never want to come back here again. She's like, well, give me this water, right? And that's a great story, right? He's like rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit, right? What it can do and how it's going to quench your thirst that whatever she's coming to draw with just isn't. And here we go um, in, in John chapter four, the woman at the well, right after that, the conversation really gets me. It says this, and the woman said to him, sir, give me some water that I may, I may not thirst nor come here to draw anymore. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Jesus goes, I know you're thirsty. I know. Jesus just told her about her husbands. He had a prophetic word. He had a word of knowledge. And the lady's like, this dude right here is not just some normal religious radical. He knew my past. And if this guy can testify my past, he might know where God is. So she goes, he goes, well, just go bring your husband, and they get that out of the way, and, and then she says, uh, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you said that well. You have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you live with now is not your husband, and that you truly spoke. And the woman just switches the story, right? She's just, Ooh, okay. Um, and the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, that you have intel, that you know something. Our fathers, she says, worshiped on this hill, on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on your mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is for the Jews first. 
But he says this, but the hour is coming and is now. And now is when the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. You see, um, religion is this. It's man's attempt to set himself right with God. It's man's attempt to be holy enough, obedient enough, blameless enough, righteous enough to be compatible with God. And, and when you look at the story, she's asking, well, where's God? And how do we worship? And every religion in the world is predicated upon that God's somewhere else. You know, I've been all around the world traveling to different countries. I've been to like 35 countries. And I've met with smart Taoist priests. And they believe that if they worshiped in this direction at this time of day, they could bring God from somewhere he is closer to them. And then I grew up in a Catholic church, and I'm not knocking this, but I had to pray a rosary to get God closer to where I was. And I thought by my dedication, my devotion, my discipline, that I could get closer to him. You see, every religion in the world is the announcement that if you did something, you can get closer to God. That God, we just have to build, we just have to go to another mountain, we have to climb another hill, we have to put a little house on that hill, we got to build a tabernacle in a little room, and then we got to have someone more holy than you called a priest poke God every now and then to see if he's awake. See, in every religion is about that. Every religion announces that God's somewhere else and you can do something to get there. And for Buddhists, it's you have to be more peaceful. And in the attainment of peace, you never really have it because it's always somewhere else. But what scares me is you come to the Western church and people preach the same separation. That if you just did this, this, and this, and this, then God will draw near to you. I know that scripture says that, but it's not talking about proximity. It's talking, draw near to God, understand what he believes about you because Jesus came, and you'll start reinforcing what he loves. You see, the great darkness that we're facing today isn't just an identity crisis, it's that we believe we're separated. And if you... And if you abide in this theology of separation, the devil would love to give you a million ways to try to bridge a gap that's not there. You see, every religion says God's somewhere else. And you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to build them another castle on another hill and then go climb up that hill and add more sacrifices. But Christianity is not a religion. It's the announcement of the end of religion. That, that tabernacle has now come inside of you. A lot of people give a lot of money to Jerusalem because they think God's still in that tabernacle. But he's not. He says, you're the temple. And it was his ideal. And he, it's his good pleasure to abide inside of you. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It's the announcement of the end of religion. It's the announcement that man can't do anything anymore to try to make itself more right with God. It's an announcement that God doesn't come any closer by your prayer. Your prayer is actually supposed to ignite what he already believes in communion. But religion makes a lot of money off that because it feels like I'm getting closer every time I pray. No, no, no. When you pray, you're, it's just being revealed to you how much in union you are. You see, guys, Christianity is not about reducing the distance between you and God because of your faithful praying, devotion, and fasting, and all those things. Christianity is an announcement that there is no more distance. There is no more delay. It's a celebration of that. 
He talked about we're here to celebrate. What are we here to celebrate? Celebrate something that man couldn't do in his own pattern. The condition that Adam gave you was beyond repair and needed co-crucifixion. And you were co-united in his death and buried and resurrected and seated in heavenly places. And it wasn't your fault. But you're in Christ and you have the same relationship that Jesus Christ himself has with God. It's his righteousness that you have. So I want to tell you today, man, that you're not, we can't worship like we're trying to get somewhere that he's not. He's inside of you. And those who worship in spirit and truth, what does this mean? They start from union. And I don't have to get somewhere and do something to get God to come closer to me. I'm just celebrating. I fast. And it turns into a feast because I simply know that he's already inside of me. Because I'm telling you, man, if you adopt paradigms and language and theologies and culture that says that you can do something to get God closer, well, the devil will keep you busy trying to. This gap couldn't be done by you. With man, it's impossible. With God, it's possible, Scripture says. See, the truth is religion is only interested in a perfect score. So it's not interested in you. So stop being interested in it. You guys okay? I better better get into my notes real quick. (laughs) See, the devil hates that you can have unhindered intimacy right now with God. The devil hates that you have union right now with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The devil hates that there was this Trinitarian dance before they've created anything Ask yourself, what was God, the Trinity, doing before they decided to create anything for eternity to pass? What were they doing? Fellowshipping. Other-centered love. Sharing. Commitment. Joy. Peace. Righteousness. Everything that's your inheritance now in the kingdom, they were celebrating. They're like, boop, we ought to create something and have them share this with us. See, the devil is upset because he can't attain what's been given freely by grace, so he tries to manipulate it and get you something to work for, something that's already free. And even if you could labor for it, it's not grace anymore. It ceases to be a gift. It's a reward. And in any way we have reward or closing language, you're going to see God as a judge instead of a father. If it's up to your obedience to bridge a gap that's not there, well, then there's always an accusation against you for how far you're not yet. And then we have scripture that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's been sealed, delivered, signed, and done. You're not in a courtroom anymore. You're in a throne room. But the devil likes to put you in a a throne room so you can produce for what the verdict already declared. Righteous in my sight. No, no. Not just righteous in his sight, the righteousness in him. You're not righteous outside the Trinity and they just see you. You're the same righteousness that they share. My gosh, this is the gospel. But I see a lot of people, a lot of relationships ruined by religion. Alcohol is not your problem. All these things are not your problem. Your problem is that religion ruins romance. Because if if I don't have romance, I can just address my wife technically now. And I can create a situation, even though I love her, where... I'm just doing the things to satisfy their relationship instead of being in love. You know, the sad part is that, and the great part is that I have people in our congregation that are seeing reconciliation in their marriage. 
But when they came in, they were only married just because they wouldn't face the shame of getting divorced. It had nothing to do with a love, a consuming love. You see, but only grace can paint that picture. So I want to tell you today, man, that not only sickness, disease, your sorrow, your grief was nailed to the cross, but distance, delay, and separation too. And if you don't know the truth, man, you'll spend the rest of your life with a good heart trying to accomplish something Jesus already did. And it's hell on earth. No matter how good you do, no matter how much you serve or how much you tithe, there's still an accusation against you. There's still that red pen. The devil will use your performance to show you that you're not enough. And the good news is right here, write this down, that you were not graded on your report card. You were graded on Jesus Christ's report card. And that's why you can rest. <laughs> that's why you can come boldly before the throne of grace right now. Because it wasn't about your performance. It was about Christ's performance. And the good news, too, is that you don't have to approach God based on your obedience. Just remember his while you were still yet a sinner. And I guarantee you, obedience will just flow out of your heart. Man. I love you guys, man. I love relationship, man. And more than alcohol, more than pornography, more than money, more than adultery ruins relationships, religion does. Why? Because it removes romance from the equation. And it just gets you barely enough to participate systematically. And Jesus went to the cross to eliminate that conversation of legalism, of just enough and scorekeeping. Yeah, I think I'm done. I'm joking, I'm joking. Hey, hey, hey. So the big question is people out there asking, where's God? And you can be a good Christian and say, oh, he's at my church. But you got to take off your shoes before you come in. Or you can tell him, hey, he's in my prayer group. And yes, he's there too. But stop by saying that he's in me. And the, and the invitation of the gospel is that he can be in you too. And the same fellowship that they've always celebrated is your inheritance now. And it's a great invitation. The union that celebrates in me, if not, we'll just be boiled down to sending them somewhere else. To be disappointed. Can I just read one more scripture for you? I'm sorry, this played out a little different in my head. <laughs> oh my gosh. So in, I think it's Matthew chapter 11, you know where John the Baptist, man, he's doing his thing. He's um, preparing the way for the Lord. And then he uh, gets thrown in jail, right? Think about that, right? You're doing everything for Jesus, preparing the way, and then you're in jail. And then John sends his homeboys uh, while he's in jail to say, hey, Jesus, are you the dude? Because, man, I've been doing everything for you, man, and I'm in jail. I'm a little bit disappointed with you, Jesus. So the guys are there at the prison. He's like, just go ask Jesus, bro, if he's, if he's the one man or did I get fooled? So his friends go, and this is in uh, John, or Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It says, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and, wait. Yeah. Yeah. To teach and preach in the cities. And when John had heard, and when he had heard John was in prison about the works of Christ, he sent the two of his disciples and said to him, are you the one that's coming or do we have to look for another? Jesus answered him, didn't even answer the question. He said, just go tell John that the things which you hear and see, 
that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed he who is not offended because of me. Wow. Go tell John I'm not answering that. Just tell him that there's a miracle. We're having a revival. <laughs> so they go back, and they're not even in the picture anymore. And then Jesus starts bragging on John. And he says, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I say to you. And more than a prophet. For this is he whom it is written. Behold, I will send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, that's pretty much everybody except for Jesus, I mean, you know, born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is even the least in the kingdom, even if you came in here believing you're a sinner still saved by grace, you're still greater than John. Okay. <laughs> but those of you in the kingdom are greater than John. So let me get this straight real quick. I'm going to tell you the totality and the effectiveness of the cross right now. So John said he was a prophet, right? And um, if you look at all the Old Testament, there's some pretty killer prophets in there. Elijah, right? Man, this dude's like, boom, right? Calls down fire. It says that Elijah does 16 miracles. Somebody say 16. 16. That's a lot for a prophet. Man, did great things. But then his, his successor, Elisha, does with a double portion, how many? 32, right? Because 16 and double portion equals 32. So you have Elijah doing these crazy things. Elisha succeeding him. Not to mention you have Moses parting the Red Sea. But John, it says that he's greater than all the Old Testament prophets. And then at the end of the book of John, it says that John did no miracles. <laughs> How? How? Red Sea fire by night, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, 32, John, zero. How is John greater? Because he's a prophet. And being a prophet has nothing to do with miracles, but it has everything to do with what the message is. You see, in the Old Testament, all the prophets had to say that one is coming, Jesus. That he's coming. And I'm going to write in Isaiah that he's going to come and be beaten on a cross. And then finally John says he's here. But then John also had to say, oh, there he goes. But you know why? Even if you're the least in the kingdom, why you're greater than John is because you have a different message inside of you. It's not that he's coming. It's not that he's here. Your message is that he's here and he never leaves. And when people ask, where's God? Just say he's in here. So next time when you worship... Yeah, look upstairs, but he's here. So you want to know the totality, the effectiveness of the cross is that Christ now is in you, and that is the hope of glory. That you don't got to go anywhere and climb other mountains to see God, that he chose you to be his dwelling place. And when people are lost in identity waiting for that, they're lost out there seeing where's God, and not until I see God, I can't get this straight. I'm going to be borrowing in my shame and guilt, and it's going to produce this and this and this. You can tell them, hey, He's not far. He's actually in me. And I want to invite you to the same oneness that he's given me. The same forgiveness, the same grace. 
the same healing measures, the same anointing. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It's the announcement of the end of religion. The end of man trying on his own efforts to play catch up with only what Jesus could do. You see, it's funny, we walk into church and I have a cross, right? And um, if I were to say, like, whose um, slogan or marketing thing has a big check, what would you say? Nike, right? And then you say, well, what's the, what's the, the symbol for Christians? And they say the cross. And like, oh, you must be religious. And people are like, yeah. No, this is an announcement that there's no more religion in you. That this cross was sufficient to fulfill your religious obligation. And this is a testimony saying that we're in union. And you, there's no varying degrees of union based on how holy you lived yesterday or how crappy you lived yesterday. But when you realize that union never left you, in spite of your performance, you will enjoy it more and bear the fruit of righteousness. So every time you look at a cross, every time you do communion, every time you drive by a Catholic church, let that cross remind you that religion is over. It's been crucified. Man's attempt by himself on his own merit to set himself right with God is no longer a discussion. Christianity is not a religion. It's the announcement of the end of religion. Christianity is not about you closing the gap between you and God by your devotion and your discipline. It's an announcement that there is no more distance or delay or separation. That's what we celebrate here. That a work we couldn't do in our own work, a guy got beat on a cross. God himself entered humanity in the incarnation to represent you and him in the same court case. See, religion gives you a courtroom experience. And it puts God in a position up there in a throne with those Gerber babies flying around him. And he's still like this over your life. And if you went to church like the next six weeks, you might get a thumbs up or thumbs down. The verdict has been passed. The evidence that was contrary to your life has been nailed to the cross. Every sin that you've committed has been deleted, thrown out. That's why he can remember your sin no more. That's why you can have compatibility with the Trinity right now yeah. in heavenly places and right now in your heart. Can I get somebody up here on keyboard and I'll just, I'm done. You guys made me take off my glasses. Oh my gosh. I almost said the F word. Fun. <laughs> Aaron, you scared me, dude. Oh, gee. You know, while I was in South Africa, um, laying in the bed, you know, there for 10 days, man, I was having the time of my life, dude. It was fun. You know, um, I saw a lot of stuff happen, man. It's because God, what he's able to do is so awesome, but it's what he's not willing to do. Like I said, that really takes my breath away. He's not willing to handle the fact that we believe we're not in union with him. He's not willing for us to create worlds that sustain a culture of separation. You know, when I was in uh, South Africa, actually the guy Daniel Naswai hit, he'd come every, every day for hours after work. I mean, like four or five hours. I'm like, dude, go away, I'm tired. But he'd be there and he just wanted to know, man, like, well, what is this? And he said, Carlos, our relationship reminds me of a story my grandma used to tell me. And he says, and now it makes sense. And he said, um, 
When I was little, my grandma used to tell me a story about a woman in South Africa who uh, had a little piece of land. And if you know anything about this Pretoria, South Africa, East London, they're very famous for uh, diamond harvesting. Like they find diamonds, you know, like the movie Blood Diamond stuff. It's like an African thing. And she said this lady was poor, just lost her husband to some type of uh, flu, had six kids, no money, was living off like the snippets of what was on their land, which wasn't very much. And there comes a night where there's no more plants to pick from the next day. Like, this is the last meal. And she spreads it so thin that each of the kids have something to eat and she can't eat and she's broke. So she feeds the kids and she sends them to bed and she feels like she has to go outside. She goes outside and there's one little plant and um, she just feels that she has to unravel this plant that has like the next bud that they're going to eat of like, I don't know what it was, like what plant it was that produced fruit. But she was supposed to uproot that and see what was under there. So she uproots it and finds a diamond. And it's not just any diamond. It's like this big diamond that she's never seen before. She's seen uh, little small ones that she can cash in at the market and get like two or three weeks worth of food. But this one was a big diamond. And joy and excitement fills her heart. And she's like, man, this may be enough for me to buy the next 12 lots. And in her mind, she's walking back to the house with a diamond. She's imagining dinner tomorrow night, and her kids are actually having meat and a meal, and they're going to have, like, you know, build their house, fix their house up. And the joy overwhelms her heart, so she walks in. The kids are asleep, and she sits at the table, and she's like, God, thank you, man. Like, the poverty I was in, man, the, the food we didn't have, that's no longer my reality. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you. So she sits there, and she has her head down, and she hears... She wakes up. She goes to the door. She's still happy. She opens the door, and it's like a beggar, a poor guy. And he goes, do you have anything to eat for me? She goes, you know, I think I may have something to give you. Just come with me. So they walk to the table, and they both sit down. And the very little she has is not much. She gives it to the guy. The guy eats the porridge or whatever it was. And she feels God say, give that diamond to him. The joy she just had. Gone, back to poverty. This guy's drunk. He's probably going to lose it on the way home, but she gives it to him. And she walks him out, and the guy runs joyfully down the street, almost like mocking her, like, ha, 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 I didn't do anything for this. And he runs out, and she's the same woman she was the night before. She's there for the next two weeks, and she's barely putting enough to eat for her and her family, almost to the point where she has to send her kids away to a relative to eat. Next morning, she makes a decision to drive her out to her sister's house where they had a little bit more to eat than she did, but she definitely didn't have anything. So she's there. She sits at the same table. She puts her head down, and she hears a knock. She walks to the door, and she's in despair. This hype that manifested one time just kind of teased her, and she opens the door, and it's that same homeless guy, that same beggar two weeks later. She looks at him. She goes, he goes, do you recognize me? And she goes, yeah, you came a couple of weeks ago. He's like, yeah, can we go sit at your table? So he sit at the table. And she's just very, I don't have anything to give you, man. And he goes, it's okay. And he gets out of his pocket and he gets this towel and he opens it up. And it's a diamond that she gave him. She goes, why didn't you just go cash this? She's like, he goes, I don't, I don't know. But all I know is that I don't want this diamond I want what made you give me this diamond. 
your hard work, your effort to try to please a God that's already head over heels for you can't produce that. People are asking, where's God? And they don't want a Bible. They don't want you to take them to class. They want to see that he's inside of you. I want it. I want what made you give me that. So the invitation today is that when you go out and you love people, make sure there's a joy and a celebration knowing that you're inviting them into the same union that you that's inside of you. So we're going to worship a little bit, but I'm going to call up the ministry team too. And if you want to come up the ministry team, you need prayer for anything. If you need healing, I'd love to pray for you too. You guys all right? You know, the biggest sin of the church isn't that we dressed up our kids like SpongeBob on Halloween. It's that we've forgotten how great of a salvation we have. Y'all missing or what? <laughs> I'm joking. So how about this? You, let's, let's all pray. If you need prayer, they're going to worship behind us. And make sure you grab some toilet paper. I mean my book in the back. And it'll be all right. So God, I just thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness. I thank you, Lord, that it was um, that you chose us in you before the fall of man, before there was a problem. I thank you, Lord, that your desire is to reveal union. I thank you, you sent the comforter to comfort us away from our own works, our own dead works, and put Christ's work inside of us. So I thank you, Lord, that you just release the Holy Spirit right now to testify to the finished work of the cross, but also the finished work inside of you. That he would convince you of the righteousness that's inside of you right now. So I thank you, Lord, that while we were still yet sinners, you went ahead and canceled every definition of distance, delay, and separation. That's why we celebrate you today by singing the song. And everybody said, Amen. <laughs>